Welcome to Stock and Development, a podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your co-host, Carl, and with me, as always, is Eitan Rivero-Sheen. Hello. <laughs> it was one, one of those days that you didn't choose in time if you wanted to only say my name or also the last name? Well, this time I decided to change it up and use my only my name as a mononym and then use your whole name. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. When, when, when we started recording, I also realized, I don't know if we told this story before, but in order to increase the quality of our audio, we both record our own QuickTime. And then when we edit, we put them together and we try to count down to do it together. Did we ever explicitly agree we were going to give each other a thumbs up to make sure the other one was recording? Or is it just something that started 47 episodes ago and we're just still doing? I think we just kind of started it. I don't know why we did that, but it, it <laughs> works. We never communicated it. It shows that we're so in sync, we don't need to communicate things. Right. I feel like even when uh, guests came, we were like, yes, and this is what we do, even though we, we yeah, that never it's a cute thing. Yep. Yeah, it's just a cute thing. Speaking of, we need to get some more guests on here. Let's let's make that a priority. Yes. Well, with that production, short production meeting, let's move forward. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, we are not doing our insane drug PSA live watch episode this week. There's just too much news to cover. So maybe next week, or maybe we'll just always have too much news and never get to it. We'll, we'll just keep that as an open threat. <laughs> And we need to milk the mystery a little bit, I think, right? We need to build a little bit of an expectation <laughs> and <laughs> a cult following of, oh my God, when are they doing the, what? All-Star Cartoons? Is that the name? All-Star Cartoons. Yeah, I, I don't remember. Something like that. No. Fascinating. Well, I mean, that's a good that's a good segue to talk about, I guess, the All-Star Cartoons of this past weekend, which sounds uh, well pretty dreadful. Did you watch Space Jam 2? I sure as hell did not. I haven't watched Space Jam 2, but I have to say, even before going into the details of what the reaction has been, it seems like that this reaction would have been exactly the same for Space Jam 1 in 1996 if the internet was around. I, this didn't seem to be a surprise at all. I don't know why people were so surprised. I, I rewatched the trailer because Alex hadn't seen the trailer and... Based on this hype cycle, I was sort of like, yeah, I guess it is really that bad. And then I watched the trailer again. And I was like, what what do you expect? It's not that bad seeming. It's kind of exactly what you would think it is. Obviously, stuff has leaked out about the plot or about things that happened in this movie that sound worst case scenario. But again, what did you expect here? Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh... <laughs> It's no surprise, but the reaction was pretty muted. I think it had like 30-something in Rotten Tomatoes. And people were like, this is a mess. This makes no sense. It's uh, an IP, you know, free-for-all. It's a womp Barry Jenkins. Absolutely. You know, trying to milk all of the IP for no reason, putting it together in the backdrop of uh, Warner Media being spun off. It's even, it looks even worse. And again, it's like, what did you expect? And this came a couple of days, like the embargo was lifted a couple of days before it came out. It did pretty well on the box office, right? 30, I think 31 million domestic. Number one in the country. A couple of million more is that Black Widow in their second weekend. It's like, 
this, this seems to be in line, right? It's going to be a bad quote-unquote movie. People are going to watch it. LeBron James has a lot of cult following. It's a family movie. It's going to be fine and fun. It's also on HBO Max for free. I'm sure a ton of people catch it there. I'm going to catch it there. And it's the the world keeps the world keeps spinning. We're gonna come back to this box office thing soon because we have to talk about Black Widow's box office. But <laughs> yeah, to, to to your point, it just seems in line with everything. It's a bad piece of studio crap that seems to be designed to make exactly as much money as it's making, and good for them. I also have been seeing rumblings of a very interesting conspiracy theory, which I don't think is even a conspiracy theory at all, that, so have you noticed, uh, I know you've noticed, how strange the IP they're, like, backgrounding in this is, like, all the people that are in it from behind, like, stuff like Austin Powers, or A Clockwork Orange, or my favorite is Ken Russell's The Devils, which is a horror film about Catholic nuns that is not available to, I believe, stream or rent or even purchase on Blu-ray, yet there is a nun from this movie in the background of a lot of shots here. Do you know what the theory is around why they're using such bizarre IP in the background? These are all the things that are getting rebooted, I would imagine? No? Even simpler? These are all the things that haven't been touched in a little bit. So they're worried about losing their rights to them. Oh my god, it's a Fantastic Four situation. Uh huh. It's literally just a let's cram stuff into the background to say, hey, we used it, ta da, so that they can perpetuate it. Because like Pork or who's it, Elmer Fudd is has replaced either Mini Me or Doctor Evil in Austin Powers in a scene apparently. Austin Powers hasn't made a, there hasn't been a movie in 15 years. I, I don't know. I guess they just oh needed to touch it in some way to maintain it. Oh my God. There is another conspiracy theory, which I guess is not that conspiracy theory. And I was surprised if you were going to bring that one up because that's from the sports side. Have you heard about the sports side? No. Tell me this one. Okay. So uh, there is this whole thing of how was the movie actually done and who was the person behind it. If it was a mm-hmm. Warner Brothers being wanted to create it since Michael Jordan and they're not being a, you know, like a, a star as big as Michael Jordan and then LeBron James coming along and being the right time or if it was kind of LeBron James pushing it to try to compete with Michael Jordan's legacy. Mm-hmm. But also, basketball is a, the cap, the, the way contracts work, is very complicated. It's weird. There aren't that many players, so the difference between like the most paid and the little paid, it's, it's weird. And LeBron James's agent, his name is Rich Paul, he founded this agency called Clutch. It's known for working deals like behind the scenes and just being like, oh, the Lakers really want this player, but they can't reach for their salary. And then it's like, oh, they got him to lower his salary. And now he's appearing in Space Jam with LeBron James. And it's like, what? And like all of the players that apparently appear, like, so I, I haven't seen it, but apparently all of the bad guys are actual players, or at least represented by actual players, including uh, players from the WNBA, which is great. But all of them are apparently represented by Clutch. So it's like all of these weird, you know, scratching each other's back, even into who is in the movie and how it's done in the movie. And, 
you know, who's going to play together and what happened and trades and... Anyway, just to say, it seems like this movie came together from pressures from a ton of different places. I, the one I'm really interested in is Ryan Coogler is still presented as a producer in the trailer. This was announced in the wake of Black Panther doing so well. What is what is Ryan Coogler's involvement in this, and why didn't he just abandon it like Martin Scorsese did with Joker? Yeah, exactly. And has has he said anything like over the past week even about this? I I don't think so. I'm just gonna type in Ryan Coogler into Google <laughs> right now and click news, and nothing. Let's see. Oh wait, okay. Space Jam Two director Malcolm D. Lee on Ryan Coogler's involvement in all the Warner Brothers cameos. Ooh, okay. Tell me more. This is live breaking news. Okay. This is live breaking news. It's very fun, you know, reading an article that people can find. So, and it's a video for the Collider oh, okay. podcast, oh. which I'm not going to watch or listen to. So, that's how uninvolved he apparently is because we can't find any text sources here. <laughs> But anyway, that's a good catch. I had completely forgotten about that. Yeah, it's just strange that that's in the marketing copy, but not part of this. So that that tells me that he's getting a paycheck, but probably keeping his nose out of this, which good for Ryan. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. That's a good choice. Yeah, and the, the last thing in, in Space Jam World is that this is also something that I think... I think the vast majority of moviegoers don't really pay attention to that, right? You and I are in film, like, movie Twitter. You're in a different level than I am. But, like, most people are going to be like, yeah, sure, Space Jam. I remember that. I like LeBron James. I like the Looney Tunes. And they're just going to go watch it. Like, nobody... Mm -hmm. I don't think the vast majority of people don't pay attention to this type of discourse and criteria. And they're going to leave and they're going to be like, eh, that wasn't great. But that doesn't mean the movie was going to do bad because, like, so many movies, if you ask me, right, my favorite movies from my childhood... Probably had a terrible Rotten Tomatoes score. Probably are bad movies, quote-unquote. And that still doesn't define in itself what people are going to watch. In the opposite, I do think it impacts, right? If it's a great movie that can drive on its own, you know, the parasites of the world. Or uh, word of mouth. But for this side of the world, it's like, people are going to watch this. I don't know. It's a really good point, and it's funny how this movie kind of weaves through a bunch of threads we're going to touch on. We're going to touch on A24 and compare it to Neon a bit. We're going to touch on Antitrust and a great opinion piece by a film Twitter guy. <laughs> and we're going to talk about Black Widow and just how it's how it's been doing and what it means for you know the future of cinema. Like every single movie <laughs> means about Something. the future of cinema these yes. times. I'm so sick of this conversation topic. Let's do a theme park thing soon, please. <laughs> <sighs> theme park transportation. Before we move into news, yes, I did want to flag two excellent things I watched this week. Okay. One is, guess what TV show I started? Oh, have you finally started For All Mankind? I have finally started for oh, all mankind just thank for you. you. Did you start it because Jeff Bezos is flying into space tomorrow? And you wanted to see what all of this space travel was about? Yes, I oh, okay. 
I can't wait to learn about the history of space travel through <laughs> Apple TV's eyes. Yes, perfect. That's yeah. exactly why. Perfect. And yeah, just to confirm, we're recording this Monday night. We don't know what happened with Jeff Bezos. Uh, you know, thoughts and prayers both ways, just in case. Yeah. Sorry. What did you think? I, I thought about jokingly putting a blank space in here so we could edit it in another segment about our reaction, but that's too much work. We'll talk about it next week. Okay. So <laughs> I I thought it was going to be a very... Okay. Back up. I hit a wall last week where I'm like, there's so much on Apple TV Plus that seems great that i need to start catching up with the stuff like mythic quest seems exactly mm-hmm. my speed apparently the second season is fantastic i'm three episodes into Robin the first Nicole season Henny. i've just started yeah yeah awesome i'm excited to dig into it ted lasso alex and i want to watch for obvious reasons everyone loves it for all mankind seems to be a best one of the best dramas that's airing right now if you're into this sort of stuff so I was like, okay, cool. I need to watch this. Eitan hasn't stopped talking about it. He's going to kill me. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So I've I've decided this is not Alex's speed at all, so I'll just watch it whenever she's, you know, working or doing something. I'll I'll fit an episode in. And I thought it was going to be this very Tony, dull, like, what if the right stuff... I guess the right stuff's the wrong comparison because it's not about Apollo. But what if the right stuff was about Apollo and not about Mercury? Mm-hmm. And then it was also set in this weird alt future. It's mm-hmm. just we're getting to know all these characters, whatever. And I started it, and the first episode's like, okay, this is a little more interesting than I thought. I really transfixed by they use archival footage and fake archival footage or audio of Nixon talking to Haldeman and they use kind of the Haldeman tapes as a framing device for some yeah. of the political maneuverings. They really get into the political side and the bureaucracy of NASA, which was a very interesting and surprising take right off the bat. And then I pulled up Wikipedia because I was like, okay, well, I'm just kind of curious. Where's the first season end? Does it Damn end it. Damn it, girl. Oh, okay. like on the moon? Like where on the moon does it end? And then I, I skim the first and second season of Wikipedia. I don't remember details. I'm not going to go back and read it in detail. But, okay, 10 seconds of spoilers here. I am so enamored by the fact the second season just seems to be about nuclear geopolitics of the space shuttle program, and it ends in 1995. Yep. We go 30 years in two seasons. Perfect. This is exactly my shit. Cool. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I'm very glad. I'm a little sorry that you spoiled it because I was going to say that Hi Bob, which I think it's episode six or seven of the first season, mm-hmm. is one of my favorite episodes of TV in the past 10 years. And it's full of cool. I hope you didn't spoil them. So I don't I read it again. I remembered you liked that title and oh did God. not. Oh, okay, good. I, I was... did not dig deep into it. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you, you, you took special attention. But. Yeah, when you see Hi Bob as the episode, put that on your phone, focus for 50 minutes, and let me know what you think. Because I really want to rewatch it. Yeah, I'm very excited for you. It's pretty cool. I can't wait for the third season because it ends in a similar fashion without spoilers to the first one, which is like they show you like five seconds of how many years in advance they're going to go. And it's like, oh, yes, I need this now. And it's, it's interesting because it's a mix of 
to your point, even the main characters, so not only, I mean, Nixon, he doesn't really appear, but you hear him. The main characters are a mix of existing people with revisionist history and just a mix of characters that never existed. So if you kind of come in without knowing, some names are going to ring a bell and some are not, but you're just going to assume that they are. But it doesn't matter, right? It starts with the Russians beating the Americans to the moon. So it's not like there is any semblance of reality into what happened, which is pretty cool. I also kind of assumed that this show would have the classic first season problem a lot of shows have, where there's kind of a very boring everyman character at the center of it, mm-hmm. which seems to be, I mean, it's the Joel Kinnaman pro- problem. He's a kind of boring everyman sort of dude. But I'm in, I'm in episode, I just finished episode two, and it's like, oh, no, actually, maybe he was the, the protagonist of the first episode, but it seems like it's moving in a lot of directions very quickly. Yeah. So I'm very excited that that's not the case. Good. But speaking of Joel Kahneman, maybe we talked about it, but I remember watching the trailer for even the first 10 minutes, and I hated him so much in Suicide Squad that I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. He's not that such a great actor. And then by the end of the first season, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm all in on him. First of all, to your point, he's not like the center of it. It's not like he has, you know, 45 minutes out of 51 minutes of each episode. But I think he not, he's now great. Mm-hmm. And you're gonna see him in a lot of different directions. I think he's very good in here. Like I, I don't, I don't even remember. Was he, was he nominated for an Emmy? Maybe no. I don't know. I don't think so. I did not pay attention to these Emmys because they seemed even dumber than normal. <laughs> I guess see. as a you know media news and strategy podcast, we probably should talk about the Emmys, but um, I don't want to. No, don't we'll worry. do that another time. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say I did like Joel Kinnaman quite a bit in the penultimate season of House of Cards, which I didn't finish, but I liked him in it, and I didn't finish the sixth season or the last season because I just. Oh yeah, he's good there. But he he's he's good in like the three episodes I saw him in. It's like, huh, there's something going on here. Interesting portrayal. Pretty good, conniving, conservative. Cool. He's like the presidential candidate from the other party, yeah. right? They never said which one. Is he? I don't remember which one is who. No, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's he's explicitly Republican. Republican. Okay. Yeah, but he was great there. But he's like a cool young, like Madison Cawthorn type. Yeah. Ugh. yeah. I was in North Carolina and I saw a couple of uh, ads of him. So yeah, nope. Okay, so that's a TV thing you watched. What else did you watch? Pig. Uh, all I've seen of this movie, it's a picture of Nicolas Cage bending under a car why is that the only thing i've seen about pig is it because i mean i live in a different dimension is, does that even happen is that from the movie he's like under a car bending like under a car it's like he drops something under a car and he's trying to get it or he's trying to fix i don't know it's like the car and him trying to go under a car truly no idea this is not a pivotal moment of pig <laughs> i'm gonna look for it just to show it. Uh, okay, well, you no. tell, tell us more about it. Yeah. Pig is incredible. The premise is very John Wickian when you say it, which is he's a man He's a man that tr- hunts truffles in the woods, and he has a truffle pig, and one night the pig gets kidnapped, and he starts going to look for what happened to his pig. Oh, my God. It sounds so that's, exactly like John Wick. Right. It sounds exactly like John Wick. Even though you haven't and, watched John Wick, but yep. Well, I know, but I know the premise of John Wick. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> So, 
I was like, oh, okay. And then I, I read some reviews that were like, uh, don't spoil it for you yourself. Just go into it. Just expect something. It's good. It's great. Go see it. And I'm not going to really spoil that anymore beyond that, but it is a an exploration of, of failure and finding meaning and finding joy set in the edges of the high-end culinary world of Portland, Oregon that is framed by this search for this pig. So that's a lot of stuff all gelling together for me. That's like, okay, this is great. This is the first five-star movie I've seen this year and probably in a, a long time. So fantastic film. Definitely worth seeing. Nick Cage is great. Alex Wolf is really great I had a lot of I didn't have a lot of fun with it but it's Alex and I had some great conversations afterwards about it okay that is so funny because you started saying something that was very topical for me that I want to think of how do you say it you say it very nicely like the search for meaning and finding comfort uh-huh. it was like oh yes I need this and then you were like in the high-end rest- culinary world of Ports and Oregon I was like eh, I don't know that much about it but as a framing mechanism that that's gonna work. That's gonna be fine. I I will say that Alex and I's conversation was driven more about the first part than the latter part. Okay. It was good. really our conversations <laughs> dovetailed a lot about all of those things and much less about the high end culinary world. Though I did actually talk to her a bit about how I've been reading over during the last year. I've been reading a lot of cookbooks and cocktail books by the great artists of film and or not film of of food and and bartending and a lot of these books are books from or about the great restaurants or bars of of old that just don't exist anymore and how strange and sad that is with with food that just that's truly a much more ephemeral art than something like film where access can be restricted but it does last more or less forever if you preserve it so yeah I had a lot of great conversation, but it's it'll definitely, I think, hit the emotional timbre you're looking at right now. It's really good. That's good. And then just talking about the second thing and trying to say, I didn't watch anything this weekend because I moved to Boston and I was trying to find an apartment. But mm-hmm. speaking of those things you were saying, uh, Roadrunner, I tried to see it and it was sold out everywhere. The Anthony Bourdain wow. documentary. Especially because I was walking in Coolidge Corner, which is a very cool area in Boston that has an old theater. And it's like, it's the biggest thing. And I was like, oh, I'll do it. Nope. All sold out for the whole weekend. Um, but I'm going to try to catch that one. There is something, maybe this is where you were going, right? There is something about, I, I connect going on a journey to find the perfect dish to going on a journey to find comfort. I think I connect food a lot with comfort. Like also, I mean, both in terms of finding something that somebody told you or going through a difficult place to try to get to it or even cooking. Uh, so that that's also something that I connect somehow. So I'm going to try to watch both of those things now. Have you heard anything about it? I think they would make an excellent pairing. Ah, I see what you did there. There's been a lot of discourse on, on Twitter, like there always is, about Roadrunner. Uh, some some sketchy morality around how he involved Bourdain's widow, how he tried to paint certain people as villains when they might not have been villains. 
I did discuss it with Christina Tortino, mm-hmm. past and future guest, who has been adjacent to that world for a long time and ha- knows people that knew Bourdain and have friends that were like trained by people that were trained by Bourdain. And she said that it's a good portrait and worth seeing. Uh, I think the one thing that sketched a lot of people out is that they use a AI voice mm-hmm. or voiceover at some point, which people didn't like, but it is of a, a primary text that he wrote. So debatable. Yeah. And, sketchiness there. And apparently it's something like they use it for one of three quotes where his voice is used and he, the, the, mm-hmm. they're not saying which one. And I feel like that became a bigger deal than the fact that they used it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, if they had just said, like, this one and that one, maybe it would have been... I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, he but, but... he's someone that I... I mean, this is something weird that we try to find solace or connection with famous people. <laughs> because it's like, I feel like they represent something that we can all share as a metaphor or as a thing. Whereas if I tell you, Carl... Uh, you know, I really connect with my aunt, you're going to be like, who the hell is your aunt? I have no idea, right? And sometimes it's a little bit easier to do like them. But I feel like for me, Anthony Bourdain and like Stephen Colbert are some of those celebrities that at a personal level and the types of stories that they shared about their lives and the types of values, especially Colbert outside of his show. I'm sure we've talked about the interview he had with Anderson Cooper. Highly recommend. But yeah, Anthony Bourdain has some of those same qualities that make me... I don't know if the word is attractive to me. Yeah, I guess attractive to him or connected with him. I don't know. He's he's one of those people that presents as very gruff, but by all accounts was a very good and kind person. Right. Uh, the only the only thing of his I've read is Appetites, his cookbook from 2016, I believe. Found it to be a deeply unremarkable and very... I, I didn't like the cookbook very much as far as the recipes. I really want to read Kitchen Confidential and some of his his writings more than just his recipes because I think there's going to be more for me to find there because he's just such a fascinating dude. Right. But I'm excited to dig more into him and I think Roadrunner might be a, a good place to start. But I think also just I kind of want to read some more of his primary text before maybe I engage with that. Yeah. That makes sense. So this was supposed to be the rapid fire news and it took 27 minutes. So do you want to uh-huh. Try to do the rest of the news also type kind of rapid fire. Let's see if we can do each one in like 10 minutes or 15. Do you think we're going to fail, right? We can try. Honestly, I think let's just keep going at this pace. The one thing that I, I, I guess Black Widow and Netflix are things that we can move quickly through. But let's stay on, I guess, A24 and, and the opinion piece kind of tie together. Again, here's another ad hoc production meeting. <laughs> yes, thank you, everyone, for participating. This is great. <laughs> Unless Carl feels like cutting it off in the editing room. So, yeah. uh, I won't. Okay, Netflix, gaming, let's go. So, there were two kind of big stories of Netflix this week that we wanted to touch on. First one, gaming. And then the second one is an opinion piece by Peter Labusa around the potential to break up Specifically, Netflix, based on antitrust um, issues in the U.S. But starting with gaming, the first thing that I thought it was very cool. Did you see that the the exclusive came from Bloomberg? 
you were a big fan of Bloomberg. And it came from Lucas Shaw and Mark Gorman. That I feel like every time the two of them write something together, it's like bombshell when their worlds collide. But anyway, uh, they announced that Netflix was hiring Mike Berdu, who used to be an executive at EA. Uh, he was also in Zynga a couple of years ago. He was in Facebook working on Oculus, on VR and AR, to basically lead their gaming efforts, reporting directly to the COO. And um, do you remember what your first reaction was like? I feel like mine was a pretty, you know, shoot from the hip God reaction, and now I have a more nuanced take on it. So curious to hear how. What was your process like when you hear about this? And what do you think? I mean, my first reaction was, yeah, sure, whatever. Okay. <laughs> my, my, my more nuanced take on it now is it says just as much about the artlessness of most of the video games that people consume as many, but not all, but many Netflix originals say about the artlessness of much of the content people consume. I hear that. I think for me at first, it was kind of a... This is dumb for so many reasons. And right now I'm at a... Still this is dumb, but for different reasons. I spent some time yesterday night like reading about this because I... I, I was working at Google when they decided to launch Stadia. I followed kind of a little bit Amazon and when they launched Luna, all of the stuff that uh, Microsoft is doing with the Xbox Pass and stuff like that. And so I think from that lens at the beginning, I was like, yeah, this makes no sense. But then thinking a little more from the media perspective and Netflix specifically, I, do, I did kind of land of like, you and me, right? Let's not even put, put ourselves in their shoes. We think Netflix is super large, is great. They have, you know, 300 plus million subscriber. They are probably reaching a plateau in terms of the growth not coming anymore from content and having to either decrease costs and increase the bottom line or focus somewhere else, right? So if I feel like if we talked here for 10 minutes, we would be like, well, they're not going to buy a studio, right? They're not going to buy an MGM. They're not going to buy a Bois. They're not going to do anything like that. They might not buy a distributor because it also doesn't make sense, and we're going to talk about it. They are not going to start. I like the entertainment guy had a great analysis about this. He says, like, what can else? What else can you do with the money? Give it back to investors? They're not going to do that. They're not going to start a dividend and be the first tech company in what ten years to create one from scratch. I mean, Apple has been doing it for a long time. And then, kind of, you kind of land at gaming as a last resource. And it's kind of similar to what I was thinking of Amazon and then buying MGM of like the Occam's Razor, Razor explanation is they saw other, the top 10 other things they could do. They were like, nah, and then they landed at this one. Does that mean it's a good decision? Not necessarily, but I still see it as like, uh, okay. I'm like, I mean, I follow It's I still think it's dumb. I think just because it's the one that makes the most sense out of the top 10 doesn't mean you should do it. Um, but I think that's kind of where I am. Yeah, Does that even make I, sense? Does that make sense? Do you buy that? Do you feel like this is a grand strategy move, that this was just the right time, and Ted and uh, Reed are gods of strategy? I, well, 
you, you know that I'm endlessly frustrated with the self-mythologizing Netflix corporate take that all along Reed Hastings was planning to create a streaming service back when he launched a, a mail order business, you know? It's... Uh, I think it was Entertainment Strategy Guy in his, his newsletter, or at some point... I, so he said something to the fact that this is less a brilliant strategy move than just a brilliant move to get investors really excited about something. I think this goes back to exactly what you were saying about the AT&T Warner acquisition way back like a month ago where you want one plus one to equal three. Mm -hmm. You don't want one plus one to equal two or God forbid less than two. Yeah. And that's what this feels like is it feels like this is going to be one plus one equals less than two. Like this is the big budget version of whenever you're watching movies and TV on your airplane back seat and you can play Dig Dug on a <laughs> terrible controller that you can barely control, you know? Yeah. I'm sure they're going to have better tech technical implementation of that. Netflix has a world-class technical team, especially compared to most of the other streaming services. Yeah. But it's like it's like App Apple Arcade, which makes more sense for Apple, considering they're the distributor of a lot of these apps, and they don't have the existential challenges of distributing these apps mm -hmm. like Netflix will. But... A lot of those games are games that were AAA iPhone games, if there is such a thing. Yeah, yeah. Like three, five years ago, where they're built for Apple Arcade right away, and they're they're not AAA console games. They're not. It's it's more just how do I kill some time? How do I have a, a beautiful little experience and an engrossing story? Like an Annapurna interactive game is going to be the, the best case scenario for these things. Netflix. I'm interested to see if their strategy ends up being more of a like Stadia, Microsoft, Game Cloud sort of thing, or a Apple Arcade sort of thing. I kind of imagine the answer is why not both. But but ultimately, I don't I don't see how this really fits into their brand. I don't see how they're going to be able to bootstrap a studio to not run into the exact same problem they they identified a decade ago with having to create original productions mm -hmm. because. The, the whole reason they started the Netflix Originals pipeline was because they realized very rightly that all this stuff is going to converge. They're not going to have rights to stuff anymore. Their library titles are going to disappear, and they're going to be screwed. Video games are even more consolidated at, at the highest levels than entertainment to a certain degree. We, we talked about here, how many studios does Sony own at this point and Microsoft? Oh, yeah. Dozens? Yeah, yeah, dozens each. Yeah, you touched on a lot of things that I had in mind. We're not as complimentary in this topic. We share the thing. The biggest thing is exactly you mentioned. The one, the one plus one is like, why are they not going to be better at doing games than if they just license them? Like, in what world it makes more sense for them? Oh, because they can do Stranger Things video games? They could do that before. Just license it to someone. And then the difference is like, oh, it's going to be in their platform. Uh, to your point. Okay, they figure out latency. They have a ton of capabilities there. They have zero social features in their system. Zero. Each each yeah. app in each TV service, it's different and works with different control capabilities depending on the control. Mm -hmm. Like, how are you going to create something here that makes sense? And then, again, Google 
Disney and Amazon try to get into gaming themselves and all are failed. Like Disney gave up. Disney just saying I'm just licensing. This makes no sense. And they have way more cash flow. And here's like also the hardware one, which is one that was very complicated for like Google to figure out. It's like, what are you going to use as a control? And I, I, to your point, I just think like, are they just going to do like A games? Are they going to have like Candy Crush? Because that's the type of experiences that you can have. And it's like, oh, you don't have anything to do. Lose some time in Netflix instead of in your phone. I don't know. I don't know right. what changed specifically Honestly, versus five years ago. More money. Again. We could do an entire episode on this because you and I keep coming up with like three tangents per point that like go down. <laughs> so I want to I want to try and hit some big ones here. Um, first one. It's interesting that Disney's approach to video games is very similar to Sony's approach now, where they just were like our core competency is media and experiences. It's not video games. We're gonna bow out and become like an arms dealer with an IP. Oh, or IP. You mean to Sony's movies decisions because they are yes, completely sorry, opposite. Sorry, not to Sony's games. video game. Got it. Got it. Yep. Yes. Yep. They're they're taking they're taking the same strategy in, in different right. fields. Yes. So that's one point. Uh, second point, the hardware point piece is interesting. I've often been interested to see. I'd love a breakdown about like their interactive stuff like Bandersnatch or whatever and what you can and can't play it on. I've never really dug into that. I imagine it's fairly limited. Oh, even so, even that is limited? For context, Bandersnatch is the the interactive movie? Is it a TV show I, where you could choose yeah. what happens? Oh, I didn't know yeah. it was limited. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's... I don't know how limited it is, but can it run on a third-generation Apple TV? Can it run on a, a Chromecast? Like I imagine so, but I've never dug into it. Okay. I would love to know more about that. And that's something I probably should have researched a bit more before this call. <laughs> call? Wow. This is sounds... We've been in too many meetings to Zoom work. Yeah. And then the last point is... I think another interesting point here is the Steam Deck. Have you seen the Steam Deck? I heard, I saw that was a thing on Twitter, but in this 17 thing we have to talk about, it was 18. So tell us tell yeah. why I didn't... Dig I just want to... I want to touch on it here as an interesting point here, which is the Steam Deck seems like seems like a classic like Sony or Microsoft product from the 2000s where it's a good idea, but way too late in the life cycle of a medium for it to actually take off. Mm -hmm. Where it's, why do you need a dedicated handheld to play PC level games at 720p when you could just purchase Razer makes a controller that you can plug your phone into and then you could use Stadia or Microsoft's product. Can't remember, is it XCloud, GameCloud, what is it? Uh, a combination of both words. Competing names. Yeah. You know what I mean. Why would you why would you get a purpose built device to play something poorly when you could just pay a similar amount for a streaming service and a cheap controller that's like well high high quality cheap controller and play the same thing on your phone and play everything it, it doesn't make any sense i think it's a, a silly thing and especially you know i'm like weirdly weirdly bullish on 5g mm -hmm. as 5g becomes big cloud gaming and streaming explodes yeah and i think it, gaming is one of those things where Maybe this is true for everything, so let's see if this point dies as I say it. 
everything needs to be yeah. right. Having content and having those not having distribution is not going to work. Having distribution, having content, but not having social stuff is not going to work. Latency being five seconds late is not going to work. Because to all of your points, Stadia had that, right? Stadia had the point where I was like, you're going to be able to play anything in 4K with the same controller, no matter where you are. You can play in your computer, you can play in your phone, you can play in any TV that has a Chromecast. You can literally click a button on your, on your controller, turn to the computer, play there. You can click a button, it's going to stream to YouTube. And yet, the latency issue, it was like less than a second, and it just didn't work. And they have the content, right? They have licenses, and they have, uh, again, that idea. It's impossible to execute. And here in Netflix, is like, I see the technical side in the back end. I don't see it in the front end. I don't see the content either. I mean, Stranger mm -hmm. Things, sure, but I don't know. And uh, I don't know. Maybe we're just inherently bearish on Netflix. <laughs> I, I think that's... We are way too bearish on Netflix, but that dovetails with our, our problem with the original IP is that most of the original IP doesn't have any staying power either. Like what? Like, we're going to have... If, if they try to make video games out of their IP, it's just going to be the, the crappy video games of the 2000s where every film of a certain budget level had a video game. Which I could totally see them doing. Like, sure, but we'll play the, the old guard JRPG. Sure. Fun. Woo. Charlie's the run with an axe. Yeah. Uh, okay, we, we'll have to come back to Netflix. Yes. Let's, let's do Black Widow next, and then we'll use A24 to come back to Netflix. Okay. Circle of Life. Cool. So, Black Widow had its second weekend this week, and it had, according to the internet, the worst thing that could have ever happened to any movie ever in the world that just proved that everything that Disney do is a, is a failure, which is it had it went down 67% week over week. The, the internet is on fire. The internet is saying that this is the worst thing that has ever happened to a Marvel movie, and it hasn't even happened to a movie in these dates, and even a movie in the pandemic, like F9, that is not day and date release. It also didn't happen like that, and I just feel like all of these comparisons are very shallow. We've talked about, and whenever somebody says things like, you can read some of these pieces in Forbes and think like, oh, this is very scientific. They are comparing it versus movies of the same genre, and are comparing it to the same date that it's also holiday uh, weekend, you know, each year. But I feel like art and going into the movies and paying that experience is so driven also by like the weather. And if a person is still coming out of a pandemic, and if like there are just so many factors that play into this, that all of these pieces that try to break it down to the biggest again thing of like. Oh, this was the third biggest Marvel that was following after a Universal movie two weeks after a Fast and Furious movie that it came out in July on a non-even year. It's like, uh, you get to a point where these things just don't make sense. I, I think a lot of the analysis around this film is just deeply stupid. Deeply short-sighted. And has no sense of 
Okay, let's look at F9, okay? F9 came out on June 25th, and it had a 60% drop-off week over week. Black Widow's, what, a 67% drop-off? Yeah, something like Week that. over week? Yeah. Okay, oh, wow. So it's it went down 7% more. F9 had a slightly higher box office, uh, 93 versus 80 domestically. It also wasn't released on Disney Plus or Peacock or whatever from yeah. PVOD, which is a point of contention with NATO, which had a deeply ridiculous press release that we'll dig into. NATO, but just not. I just we should say because when you texted me, I thought <laughs> NATO, like the North Atlantic, whatever you know, organization. Yeah. yeah. No. No. Okay. Every time I see NATO, like, I think we've made that joke like five times on this show. It's, it's just so weird that it's called NATO. <laughs> but I think that they're pretty fairly apples-to-apples apples comparisons. And, okay, yeah, 60%, 67%, the externality of PVOD, it's performing the same. Theaters are not fully recovered. We're seeing these insane drop-offs. As you said, or as we've said, it's always a hockey stick graph with these films pre-COVID anyway, where they make all their money in the first month and then they make no real money after that. Nothing has changed. This is par for the course. It's a movie about a character that people don't really care about, that everyone that wanted to see it saw it, got in and out. And I think that after this, people are just going to wait for streaming because you know what? It's going to be on Disney Plus, just like Loki and Falcon and the Winter Soldier and every other Marvel movie that you might want to watch, except for The Incredible Hulk, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, who cares? Like, this is this is a nothing news story as far as the future of, of, of theaters. In fact, it just confirms some stuff that we saw with F9 to me. Yeah, I agree. It's a nothing burger. It's also a character that it's dead. So it's like, this yeah. is not going to lead to anything else. And, yeah, for me, the biggest thing, this is just an example of... Um, not clickbait, right? Because all the important outlets talk about it, but it's like, yeah, it's all trying to on super analyze it. And exactly what you said, it's a boring argument. Even if it's probably what's happening. It's like, yeah, they had Disney Plus. Some of the people there didn't watch it there, had watched it already. 60% is exactly the same as F9, exactly the same as before. Going forward, just because of the ubiquity of content, it's even going to be more of a hockey stick. What is, there is no news here. I think the, even the most interesting part was the uh, before going to NATO because I wanted to tell us about it. This deadline thing was just talking about how um, this deadline article just tries to read into every single decision and tries to say that the date and date release and premier access was a bad decision and this is going to kill the revenue that they're getting and it's like. No, it's not. We're, they made so much money. It's still so good. Sometimes it's fine for things to be simpler than they appear. Tell us tell us what NATO said. The North American Theater Organization? National Association of Theater Owners Close. Oh my god, it's exclusive. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not North American, North Atlantic, North whatever. No. Yeah, it's just America. So, essentially, they're talking about how the film performed really strongly last week and how F9 in a Quiet Place had better performances, which 
Again, I think in matters of degrees, not really that much better. But they weren't released on streaming, as this one was. And they're just saying, essentially, you're just taking your, your revenue from the the pay one or the prepay one period, which is the, so the PVOD period. Basically, yeah. after it leaves theaters, before it goes to streaming for the first time, they're, they're moving revenues up front, which hurts the theatrical revenue, which therefore hurts Disney and hurts theaters. They also bring up piracy and talk about how it was the most torrented thing, and Deadline does too. And just, it, I'm on record about thinking piracy is a nothing issue because it's going to happen anyway. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess it's harder to to take a DCP and, and load it onto the internet, but you could watch a camera. But like, I, I don't know. It's who cares? Somebody was piracy is going to happen. Yeah. If somebody's going to pirate the movie. They're probably not going to go pay the money to see it in any form anyway. Like, who cares? Yeah. That's where I'm at with that. You just feel like it's such just, a weird... It's just a... Just trying to make a point. But I like the one... Because even the one from the PVOD, I don't know that I even buy that. I don't buy that, yeah. If you if you buy that, then you're also saying that going to the theater is stealing money away from the PVOD window. Because you're going to see the movie anyway. Why would you pay for it in six months? That's a very good point. If it's going to be available in I Disney just... Plus for free in six months, anything you do now, it's stealing away. Like, there is no incremental revenue anyway. And yeah, to that point, if you steal it, if you don't release it till pay one, then, well, actually, PVOD is taking away from the pay one window. You know, it, it's if you yeah. start blaming all these levers for cannibalizing the other levers, then you don't end up with any actual analysis and. Yeah, I, you and I are on record about liking the theatrical experience, not wanting it to die, thinking it probably won't die. Yeah. But this is, like what it wasn't going to save movies. F9 might have saved movies. It didn't save movies. I think it's pretty well. I don't know. It's, it's coming back. Well. It's coming back. That, that's all we can hope for is that this stuff will come back and, Hopefully people will go see things like Pig, you know, where it's, mm -hmm. you know what? Pig, I saw with a crowded theater. There were th about 30 people in that theater. They all enjoyed it. They were all happy to be there. It was the second night. I was very excited to see that. That's what's going to keep these theaters alive. Not praying that big studio crumbs are going to trickle down and give them money. And you know what? The Cinemark I saw it at probably won't live because it's a bad theatrical experience. you got to have a good experience based on food, bev, whatever, make it a, a experience. Okay, we're, I'm just like repeating theses I've <laughs> delivered a hundred times before. This episode must be so frustrating for people who have been listening to the show for a while because it's just the same stuff we talk about all the time. And we're going to talk about this also in a little bit when we talk about the Netflix and the Trust thing. But yeah, it's the same thing with Roadrunner. Sold out. In all the theaters yeah. that it's playing. You can't find it. So, yeah, Black Window, Deadline, uh, Thanks for Nothing. Uh, A24. What the hell is happening with our friends? An example? Yes. An example of the sort of movie that I just said might, you know, actually keep the theatrical experience alive. And A24 is apparently flirting with a sale. The target price is $3 billion, which... I don't know. Compared to MGM, just throws a wrench into everything as far as valuation goes. Like using it as a comparable, 
I think compared to the library MGM has, in theory, sure, A24 is worth a fraction of what that's worth. Compared to his modern brand and modern perception, A24 is worth more. It's just sad to see one of these mini-majors get potentially scooped up, except Alex and I were fighting about how this is bad, and I'm like, yeah, it's bad. I wouldn't hate Apple buying it, and she's like, you're just an Apple fanboy. You can't say that. So that's where I'm at with that. One plus one equals two. Why would Apple buy them instead of just expanding the partnership that they already have? That's a great question. And I'm trying to retrain my, retrain my brain to think that way. And you know what? There's not a really great reason for them to buy it. But in this acquisition-hungry world where everyone's afraid that good content and good creators are going to get scooped up, I think it makes sense to protect those, the investment Apple's made and their commitment to, I think, a higher quality, more limited amount of content. And A24, I think, fits the bill very well in comparison to other things that might be up for sale. So I think as a defensive maneuver, it makes sense as a one plus one equals three. As a traditional, like, we need content, let's buy a studio move, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's, uh, for me, 1 plus 1 plus 2, but I'm taking something away from somebody else. So my 2 is yes. something like that. But yeah, literally. Because maybe they have a deal with A24 for like the next 10 years, and this is just a way of saying, like, I would like to have that in perpetuity. I have no guarantee that that's going to happen because they could just get bought by somebody else, and then whatever deal was next, they're going to do it with somebody else. Yeah. I And I think A24 has got to have a, You've got to have a brand, I mean, so much of A24 and these modern mini-majors like A24, Neon, they are, they have built their brand around social media, word of mouth, really becoming kind of like the cool, younger millennial, Gen Z brand. And I think that's something that if you remove that branding and or destroy that branding, then it becomes very difficult to justify why A24 exists unless you wanted the rights to Ladybird and Moonlight. Like, why would you buy that if you're going to destroy it? And there's a good chance that a company like Amazon would buy it and then just destroy the branding. And then you have a bunch of relationships that aren't that strong anyway because all these creators went and made something somewhere else immediately after anyway for the most part. It's, it's also very interesting looking at A24 in contrast to, I think Neon's the best comparison. Similar brand, similar... Kind of, we're going to own social strategy, but A24 back in 2016 was king of the world. They had Moonlight. They won. And now you've got Neon who rode a palm win with Parasite to a palm win or to an Oscar win for Parasite. Uh, they have more and more success. Pig is a Neon film. They just won their second palm in a row at this year's palm at Cannes Film Festival for Titan, which mm -hmm. are you familiar with Titan? It sounds like my name with a T at the beginning. It, it sure does. I really want it. I just want it to become famous so that I can be like Titan without the T. Titan. That's the way to spell it. Incredible. That's my, that's the so if you ever see why do you want this to succeed? That people say my co-host name, right? <laughs> have you I have you seen Raw? I don't think so. Add it to my raw was right not now. your speed. You should not watch Raw. Oh, okay. And you probably shouldn't watch Titan either. Okay. Uh, raw is a 
z- zombie film kind of. Hmm, it's like, fine. well, not not really. It's it's about a girl who she's a vegetarian and she's at vet school and she develops a, a taste for meat and a craving for flesh and it gets real weird and real bloody real quick. It's it's very psychosexual and strange and I don't think it's your jam. Jam. And Titan seems to dial up all of that to a hundred thousand percent because it's about a um it's very similar to a movie called David Cronenberg's well it's David Cronenberg's crash in premise where people get sexually aroused by car accidents and this she like gets in a car accident as a child and has a titanium plate in her skull and therefore she becomes like sexually aroused by cars and it's like kind of a dance movie too seems wild I'll see it. Weird as hell. Congrats to Neon. No, That's yeah, all I'm it's saying. It's upon the art. Neon's making these really weird investments that seem to be paying off. Yeah. It sounds also like the golden arm, based on her fetish for a metal piece of her body. <laughs> now a Quibi original. Sorry, now a, Sorry, a, a Roku, Roku original. Roku, Thank Roku you. Original. Yes, yes. That's what I meant, of course, of course. Well, yeah, we're going to have to keep the listeners updated with what happens with A24. We will. I, I mean, I imagine it. Three billion is a pretty low asking price based on what we've seen. I imagine it'll fetch it. Somebody has money to burn. Give up. I'm curious well, from the same way you're gonna use to go to Netflix again. Go for it. Well, it, it's less about Netflix and just more about antitrust here. Oh, okay. We've talked for weeks and weeks and weeks about mergers and acquisitions and how everyone's spending a bunch of money to do stuff like remove content from the the potential coffers and platforms of other people and that's exactly what this opinion piece which we'll link to by peter labuza in the la times is about so labuza is a fascinating dude you should follow him on twitter he went to usc he has a PhD in essentially business history. So I think it's cinema and media studies is his PhD. And he's just fascinated in the history of media businesses, like way back when. So stuff like the Paramount decrees that we've talked about on the show, he's more or less an expert in these things. When Eitan sent me a, a piece, this piece in the Times, it actually, I sent him back a photo of something that, Alex pulled from JSTOR. Something I love about being married to an academic is she can just pull any academic article I want for free. So uh, this article is Hard, Fast, and Brokerage. Irving Levin, the filmmakers and the birth of conglomerate Hollywood. Exactly my stuff. It's been on my desk for a few weeks. I've been meaning to read it. Like This guy's exactly interested in the corporate business history. So really cool follow. He also just has pretty good taste he hosts a podcast called the cinephiliacs which has good gets too as far as guests so yeah well, you want to talk to us about kind of the thesis of this op-ed yeah sure i just want to say that moment when you sent me that picture was like the perfect oh my god we have a podcast talk about this because it was so cool like oh look peter Lavusa has a an op-ed about breaking netflix and you're like oh yes and i have an academic paper he's just waiting <laughs> to be really like i'm sure nobody that listens to us is going to know who peter Lavusa is well a couple of them this is we're trying to make this accessible to, to the to people. <laughs> so yeah, basically what he says is that antitrust in the general sense of the world is usually used to 
in the US specifically to say, to try to control the amount of choices that customers have so that they can uh, increase competition, right? They want competition because that includes more choices, which leads to better experiences for customers. And what Peter focuses his open on is on, on actually on the small, on the producers of movies, on the makers of the movies, of the little studios, the little directors, the little screenwriters. And he says that Netflix is changing the way content is created in some pretty important ways. He highlights, for example, and I didn't know this, that all of their movies have to be done on a specific type of camera. There is not the one that most people use, which I thought was very interesting. The type of documentaries that they are publishing, and Netflix is now probably the biggest force in documentaries right now, is kind of pushing creatives to write some types of documentaries and not type of others. The way they deal with contracts and how they can cancel seasons attaches people to Netflix. And, and that is kind of a play or get left behind type of way that is kind of forcing the A24s of the world or even the Neons of the world, even though they are the biggest independent providers into just the, they basically their thesis, if Netflix continues to be the way that it is, these small subscribers are not going to be able to enjoy that variable cost upside that they could have, that marginal cost of, oh my God, Parasite hit, I'm going to make so much money. And they're going to rely on like, oh, Netflix bought this movie for $8 million and that's ever anything I'm ever going to see from them. And it's also kind of a vicious cycle because if Netflix continues to be big, there is this, people say, right, there is a marketing theatrical, they just go there. The assumption on his opening is the bigger theatrical, the bigger Netflix, the smaller theatrical, the less of another channel the smaller uh, documentary um, creators have, and then they're going to continue to go towards Netflix. So he proposes something similar, you mentioned it, the Paramount decrease, where the, this, the Justice Department basically said, we need to separate content creation from content distribution. Because if we don't do that, the content creators that manage distribution are going to prioritize their content over others. Which does sound exactly like this, right? Which I, at the beginning, I was like, I don't buy it, I don't buy it, I don't buy it. And then that part of the end, I think, clicked it for me. Um, what did you think? I agree. I think Netflix was the perfect example for this op-ed because it is still, in most people's mind, the genericized term for streaming services, even though less and less it has the the cachet and the market share that make it the dominant streaming service. But overall, I, I think it is a really interesting and salient point or company to use here. So he, he points out that I think over 50% of the content on Netflix now is originals, which I had no idea it was at that point. Did you? I just heard it from Kevin earlier this week that it reached 50 50. Yeah. But again, who knows which, in what, right? It might be number of shows instead of number of seasons. It might not mean number of minutes. You can very easily get there by just losing things that leave Netflix. So like they definitely have a ton of original content. I just, that specific right. number still feels a little flimsy to me. It's the per- maybe it's probably the percentage of the, the two minutes that people want. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but that's just 
to, to me that as, as an aside that's heartbreaking because it just shows more and more of the kind of casual erasure of history and of just access that, that Netflix promotes because if this is the one streaming service people have access to they're a- accessing a dozen great movies that Netflix has made over the last decade and how many other movies obviously TV shows a little different I think they've had a much higher success rate there but it's it's really is interesting that like, as all these things are getting hoarded up and disappearing then you have less and less access and as people are coming out of COVID and choosing what to cancel and what to keep then more and more yeah they're they're losing access to an entire world of content and if Netflix is the biggest game in town and you can also play video games on there then sure <laughs> great why would I like I don't need another service this is what I'm going to watch and it's going to dictate what my the content I consume is which to your point is anti well to Labuza's point is antitrust in a kind of more nuanced way mm-hmm. or what new antitrust could help control right just to that point I was remaking my list mentally this week I think Netflix for me now it's under HBO Max and Disney Plus. I wouldn't cancel it because I share my password. But again, in this hypothetical world, you see that now Wellington Confidential is in HBO Max, the spin-off of what we do in the shadows. Mm-hmm. HBO Max is just amazing. Um, but well, from a content perspective, yes. from a content perspective, yes, yes, we know yeah, UX and um, go-to-market strategy is not the best. But the Yeah, I think the 50-50s part of, to your point, is he, Peter, frames it as, oh, if you're one of these small companies that you want the upside, if Netflix is quote-unquote anti-competitive and it buries it under something over their own original content, they don't get the upside. But again, it's like, well, they already got paid. There was no upside, right? If people watch it more, it doesn't really change anything. But then it's again, right? It goes back to them being forced to sell. And I'm sure Netflix and Argue were like, what do you mean, right? Apple just spent the most for a movie in Sundance. And Amazon bought whatever, Uncle Frank. Did you see Uncle Frank is nominated for a, an Emmy for a TV movie in Amazon? And I, it's difficult to see the... It's difficult to buy that argument and not having it apply to everyone else that is kind of doing both. Which is not everyone, right? Disney is not doing that. But like, HBO Max is doing theirs and licensing. Peacock is doing theirs and licensing. Hell, 30 Rock is coming into Netflix. The crown jewel that Peacock used for the upfronts that you love so much. Did you see? 30 Rock is coming to Netflix next week. That's so funny because that's where, you know, I watched 30 Rock for the first time like eight years ago. But now I just watch it on my beautiful DVD set. Mm-hmm. Well done. Uh, well, while you're saying this, I you know the famous like Jack Nicholson departed GIF of him like scarily nodding his head. Yes. 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 That's 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 what I'm thinking of the whole time with this. It's like yes, please, perfect, cool. <laughs> Break uh, all of them off, my precious. <laughs> I think there are more compelling antitrust cases that are much more pressing 
and important that I think are going to be more top of mind compared to a Netflix case that the Justice Department ta- might like not ever tackle. But yeah, for sure, it, it's. I I think the best hope for any of this getting touched by any by the Justice Department and antitrust or the Supreme Court is the fact that all of this is being consumed by tech and subsumed by tech. The fact that all these tech companies are making these investments when you, like, we just naturally came to the conclusion that it's anti-competitive just now. Like the one plus one equals two or three argument. You and I, without using the word antitrust or anti-competitive or antitrust, came to the confusion, well, yeah, if I can legally buy that to keep it from my competitors, I totally would. But that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And I think, to your point, it feels like the DOJ, this is getting into the area that I we don't know that many about, is probably going to touch the cases that impact consumers directly right now, where this one is yeah. kind of indirect through the, the smaller producers of content. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's where the real action is going to happen. But I, I think, as Peter points out, Biden and the FTC, a lot of congressmen are now really starting to realize that people are interested in, like the general populace is interested in, in reform around a lot of this. So hopefully we'll see some action. Yeah. I think I think the biggest counterpoint to this, well, I don't know if the biggest, is there are signs that you don't have to own distribution in order to exert the power to get them to yeah. do what you want, which the example that we've talked about is Disney, right? That like most of the distributors have this like 55 around share with theaters and that Disney for their, like the last Jedi was like 65. And then for some others, now they're looking for 70 or 65, but with a couple of requests, right? You need to use all of the premium screens. You need to give me a certain number of trailers and blah, blah, blah. And then if you break any of those, you need to give these 70% of the take, right? Yeah. And they don't own the distribution. And I guess this is only true if you own the type of content where you can bully your way through this or accept that yeah. market power. And But yeah, that's kind of an easy data point of like, well, you can do that even without owning the distribution. So then how do you actually stop it? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I also think that... In a perfect world, like a more perfect world might be one where there's a lot of different streaming services, but it's more of like the niche services like your movies that can survive and <laughs> thrive and, and push things and are not necessarily predicated on original content or they are, but it's more niche content and not, you know, the $10 billion franchise that everyone wants to see and that you're using as a carrot to pull people in. I, I think there is room for there to be a more hybridized digital distribution model for people, but when it becomes the monoculture and it, when it becomes the only way to access this, then that's when it becomes scary and bad and anti-competitive. This is also a pretty good way. I mean, I have another AUA, but I want to get your reaction because we might have to spend time on this next week. Wall okay. Street Journal reports five minutes ago. 
Comcast CEO Brian Roberts met with Viacom CBS chairman Sherry Redstone and Viacom CBS CEO Robert Bakish to discuss, to discuss a streaming partnership. Comcast and Viacom CBS. The two ones that we were saying they might buy, you know, one is going to buy Lionsgate, the other one is going to buy Discovery and Warner. They're talking to each other. That's at least a curveball. That's a curveball. That's like the most cursed streaming service as far as like corporate culture I can think of. It's like the two legacy, the most legacy <laughs> brands combining each other. Oh boy. I, I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine a world in which the Justice Department allows CBS and NBC as far as broadcast networks can to combine. I can also not imagine their partners. I forget what they're called. Like, what is it called? Like the the people that broadcast. Oh, like the them? regional networks. Or yeah, whatever those are called. I can't. There's got to be some like slicing and dicing and spinoffs to make this work, but. Okay. Yeah. To be fair, sure. it, it, it says that it's for streaming for international, but it also, I'm showing Carl my screen. I don't have the Wall Street Journal, so the only thing I see is a, the title, but it was literally, we don't want to deep dive more. Let's think about it for next week. But yeah, from a broadcast perspective, it seems bananas. Um, bananas. But what a time, what a good time to have a book. Give me a second because you do have Alex a, has a, a Wall Street Journal's access th through mm. school. So I just used your uh, information to log on. Okay. Now I can share my screen. Ooh. This is really exciting. We've done lots of reading news on, live on air this week. Everyone's favorite topic. Are we. Re reacting live or are you just reading and then you will, will say a little bit more I'm just reading it and hoping you're reading that as fast as I read <laughs> I'll try, I'll try, I'll try, yes okay, so they're talking about international expansion how, so Paramount Plus is going to 45 markets by 2022, Comcast wants to get local deals for Peacock so, okay some analysts on Wall Street view Comcast and Viacom as potential candidates for a merger at some point. We've talked about that. We both thought it was mergers or acquisitions of other companies, but <laughs> I guess it makes sense that they would think about doing that. Um, I didn't realize that, wow, Redstone, the CEO, she's an 80% voting stake in, in Viacom. The, the chairman. The chairman, yeah, through her family. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa, I didn't realize Sumner had that much level of control when he passed it on to her. Whoa. Okay, this doesn't much say much of anything except that it's developing. Okay, that was a big waste of like five minutes as far as reading, not as far as you breaking that up, because that is a really yeah, we'll good thing to bring up. I'll show you there will be more, more interesting stuff, especially another tangent. Peacock has the Olympics starting next week, and speaking of Comcast, and they also absorb the WWE network. I'm not at all into wrestling. It's not my thing at all. But they absorbed it and they have the rights. And they had their first pay-per-view on Saturday. And apparently it was terrible. Like apparently it just went, the screen went blank for like 15 minutes. Wow. Yeah. And it was like a huge, I... the, the first time and whatever. And yep. 
I, I do know WWD, WWE is a decent streaming business because pay-per-view pays pretty well. But, huh, okay. Well, we will... This situation is de- stuck in development currently, and we yeah. will get back to you when we know more. <laughs> okay, so I have an AUA for you, which I'm assuming the answer is going to be, I didn't do this because you had a busy week, but did you make your sight and sound list? Oh, I haven't. Well, that it's up there with the All-Star cartoons as a big to-do. <laughs> okay, so cool. but we'll, yes. we'll, we'll table that. I need to find 10 minutes to do that. I have to think of another AUA for you now. Okay. You can ask about uh, CNN Plus. I can ask you about CNN Plus. I guess it's okay, another... Here's another live on air production meeting where you get a peek behind the curtain where sometimes we feed each other questions when we can't think of them. Sometimes. But what the hell is CNN Plus? <laughs> I <laughs> haven't read that much. It was a busy week. But it. <laughs> but, I mean, CNN has been. AT&T, right? It's still part of AT&T. Has been trying for a long time to figure out how to monetize CNN more, more, more than just cable. And they came out with this CNN Plus, which apparently now, I mean, since six months ago, Plus just means you have a streaming service. But it's kind of a mix of in between. It's it's similar. It's not the first direction, but of course, Ben Thompson talks about it nicer. It's a little bit similar to ESPN and ESPN Plus. ESPN and CNN are severely constrained by linear TV that they can only show you one thing, right? Or they can show you two. And the way they can get those cable fees is that they can put the more premium things there, the things that everyone wants to see. But then it makes a lot of sense to have streaming because now that you're not constrained and you can show a lot of different options, you can go for the niches. Again, Ben Thompson put it nicer into my head. And CNN Plus seems to go for that. All of the best hits are still gonna be cable and cable only. But now they can try to pitch a little bit more to the niches with the type of programming that they do, even if it's not as, you know. Remember when the Malaysia Airlines plane crashed that they had all of these like 3D crazy renders? It might not be as high production as that. But um, another thing to add to our super cable bundle startup that we put together where we put all of the bundles together and then we just create a cable package again. It makes sense as a service. Premium news services have been trying to take off for a while. You've got Apple News Plus in the wings. You have Facebook trying a million permutations of trying to make something work. Like It it makes sense from a tech product perspective. I think it makes sense from a niche content perspective because a lot of people do want to watch news content. And things like investigative journalism have died or collapsed over the years and this would be a potential home for them and i think a welcome home for them it's yeah interesting sounding product i don't hate it It, it's also very funny because i I was reading something earlier kind of a history of of cable bundles and product tiers in, in hbr and one of them was talking about how the middle package always had like ESPN and CNN mm. and probably Disney in there. And ESPN and, and Disney now are their own streaming services. CNN really isn't. So it makes sense that this would be the last of the legacy, like these big brands that people cared about getting a cable package for that's finally expatriating and, and moving on to the greener pastures of the streaming wars. Yeah. 
I guess what had just happened here was I was, was supposed to ask you a question. You proposed one. I didn't know what it was. You told me about it, and then I answered it like it was an AUA. Cool. Yeah, Great. exactly. I guess we, it was just a double. Beautiful. Double AUA. Okay, so what what else What else do you think of around it? No, that, I mean, that's basically it. didn't get the chance to do more. I'm not a news person. I feel like the only people that are going to subscribe to these are airports. Um, yeah. Not my jam. I, I'm a... I'm a New York Times, and I'm getting the Boston Globe now that I'm leaving Boston. That's how I get my news, probably. Alex and I just started getting the Times in print, and that's been beautiful. We do the crossword every day. It's a great life. You need to support the local one once you move to San Francisco. I mean, not that the Chronicle is yeah. small, but San Francisco Chronicle, pretty good. Yeah, I'll find a nice alt-weekly to support instead. Yeah. Remember six months ago... Not like a year ago when we started, it was like September and there was not that many news. And we were like, the podcast needs to, we need to have a central topic that we research a little bit more because nothing is happening because of COVID. Yeah. And now we have a week like this. We've had all news episodes, but this was bananas. We could have had an episode of each of these topics. This was a deeply chaotic episode. And honestly, I, I think it's been good because... How much during this episode have we referenced episodes where we did a deep dive on something? You know, like I think those gave us a good runway for to be able to have our own, not necessarily frameworks, but lingua franca with each other mm-hmm. about to discuss these things. Yeah, absolutely. And also, if you're a new listener, you can go back and listen to those, learn a little more about it. But I think that's going to do it for this week. We landed perfectly between an hour and 20 and an hour and 30. Uh... Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll keep you in the mystery if we're going to do the All-Star cartoon next week or if you're going to see my sights on Soundlist next week. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Excited to check in next week with whatever stupid media acquisition we have to talk about for two hours then. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>